0: Welcome to Immigration Nerds. Today joining us, we have Ron Hira, Howard professor and co-author of his latest publication, Reforming U.S. High-Skilled Guest Worker Program, which was published in the Atlantic Council. Along with Erickson Immigration Group attorneys, Justin Parsons and Hibba Anver, the three debate his critiques on the H-1B system over whether it inherently exploits immigration workers for cheaper labor, which would invariably dispossess qualified U.S. workers. Both parties agree there should be a system that finds the best and brightest while at the same time not overlooking American workers or undercompensating immigrants. This conversation confronts the terms of where that line should lie. I'm Ian Gaines. Come join us Beyond Borders.
1: So thanks for coming in today.
2: Thanks for the opportunity.
1: So I... I guess maybe a little bit of background in terms of your education, what you do now at Howard, mm-hmm. and then how you got into kind of writing and researching about H-1Bs and highly skilled workers in the U.S.
2: Sure. So uh, I've been at Howard, I'm in the political science department, a uh, associate professor for five years. And before that, I was at uh, Rochester Institute of Technology, which is an engineering college in upstate New York and taught public policy there. Um, but earlier in my career, uh, I'm an electrical engineer by my other training and a uh, professional engineer, and so I worked in the tech sector and research, uh, both inside and outside of government and robotics, and moved into policy work. So I've been working on these issues around uh, both uh, high-skill immigration as well as the outsourcing of high-skilled jobs, uh, technical jobs, for a little bit more than 20 years now.
3: So what made you make the jump from a very kind of technical profession to getting into more policy type?
2: I was at NIST, which is in Gaithersburg. It's a government research lab in the early 90s. And uh, actually, we were doing things like uh, working on robotics and artificial intelligence and uh, uh, driverless cars, believe it or not. We had driverless car on that uh, campus. But I was more interested in why government was funding us to do this work than... Doing the actual robotics work, so I got in, in interested in policy. And from my perspective, um, I'm still view myself as an engineer. You know, engineering is this is really just uh, learning approaches, systematic approaches to problem solving. And so, instead of trying to solve a technical problem, you're trying to solve a public policy problem,
3: such as an H one B, I suppose.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so such as, use, as such yeah. as reforming and getting uh, the best and brightest.
1: Yeah. So. One of the reasons we asked you to be on, we came across your paper called Reforming in U.S. High Skilled Guest Worker Program. I stumbled upon this because it was featured by the Center for Immigration Studies. I guess tell me a little bit about how long it took you to write this this paper, how long this research was kind of in the cooker for, and just, I guess, kind of the, the story behind this, this, uh, this paper.
2: Yeah, so, I, you know, I've been working on these issues for a long time and felt like um, there needed to be sort of a clear, clearer understanding, uh, sure. around how the program actually operates, what some of the rules are, what some of the needs are. So, I've been thinking about doing something, uh, like this, and, and, uh, my co author from the Atlantic Council, Barth uh, Gopal Swami, approached me, and so we put something together. Uh, it took a little while to, to get it through, you sure. know, and through the process and all, but, uh, um, I think the key was to trying to reach kind of a broader audience. Not?
1: Sure. So kind of going through, I'd say, the report, I don't know if you're able to kind of, if you want to kind of walk through your arguments and kind of summarize some of the, the high-level points that you make. And I guess I have a few questions that I'll, I'll kind of jump in as, as you go through.
2: Okay. So the, the H1V program, which, which is kind of what we focused on, but yeah. it, it really kind of illuminates some of the other programs like the L1, Intercompany Transfer the O-1, the OPT, and so on. There's a whole alphabet soup, as you know, of these different guest worker programs and even on the high-skilled side. So the H-1B program will turn 30 next year and uh, there were a lot of promises made when it was enacted in, in 1990 sure. by Congress and by the administration, the Bush administration at the time, um, and those promises have never been kept. And so that was kind of Part of what we're trying to do is explain that this is not a new thing where there are problems with the program, that there is some history behind it. And, and uh gave the example of 60 Minutes, uh, CBS's yeah. news program, doing a, a program back in the early 90s, right after the program, the H-1B program was uh, created, saying, look, it's being exploited for cheap labor. And Congress really has never fixed this uh, this problem. In that case, it was Hewlett-Packard. Uh, and then you fa- fast forward 25 years later, and CBS 60 Minutes does another segment, um, which was around uh, University of California as well as Disney, replacing their workers with a cheaper H-1B workers. The motivation here is to, to say, look, there's something more fundamentally wrong uh, with the program and the way it's set up. And the way to think about it I, I, is, you know, guest workers, uh, guest worker programs are really difficult to manage. Um, what you're doing essentially is creating a new market, a new labor market, a separate labor market that operates outside of the us labor market. You're increasing the supplies. And any time you create a market, you have to create rules around it. and those rules have to be enforced by somebody and and set properly yeah. uh, for the market to function appropriately. and And part of what we're talking about in the paper, is that those rules are not really set very well and they're not really enforced very well. So you've got a guest worker program in a labor market that's really kind of not operating as advertised, not as intended.
1: So one of the takeaways that I have is it paints a very broad stroke of the H-1B programs. I think everyone, whether it's immigration advocates or immigration hawks, are in agreement that there are some bad actors, but why not also talk about employers who actually use the H-1B program that actually pays above market. Mm-hmm. Um, these companies actually create then jobs for U.S. workers. It stimulates the U.S. economy. Mm-hmm. We're not, I guess, not here to, to talk about kind of the, the consulting companies, but the, the companies that are using the H-1B properly. Why not talk about some of that within the program, mm-hmm. w- within the research paper? Well, I think it's uh, implied
2: right there. I mean, what you're trying to do is get a better pool of candidates. You're trying to really get the best and brightest. So how do you select the best and brightest? Nothing in the paper talks about eliminating the program. It's about improving it or reforming it. I've worked in research my whole career, you know, whether it's in universities or in government research labs. Immigration is important. The H-1B program is an important component of skilled immigration
1: and work. So how do we make it better? Sure. Now, doing this paper, did you you at all speak to the Amazons, the Googles, the Apples, the Netflix, about kind of how they're using the H-1B? Yeah.
2: So, uh, you know, of course, I, I look at the data that's publicly available. So it's one thing to listen to their testimony and their sure. advocacy. It's a different thing when you actually look at evidence. So I look at those kinds of things pretty carefully, and I argue that I know the data about just as about uh, as well as anybody in terms okay. of how the, the programs are used. There's lots of cases, even, you know, you're sort of, you laid out this sort of good actor, bad actor, and I think that's a a mistake uh, from a public policy perspective. That's the approach that we've tried uh, in terms of reforming the program for years. In the early to mid-90s, there were a lot of stories of people training their replacements, uh, of cheap labor, um, exploitation of the foreign workers. And remember, this isn't just good for U.S. workers, reforming it by raising wages. It's a fair to the foreign workers and themselves who are getting underpaid and, and exploited if you improve the, the program. What happened in 1998 was they said, look, there's these good actors and bad actors. Let's separate out these bad actors. And the way we'll identify them is we'll create this thing called the H-1B dependent category. Yeah. These are the heavier users of the program. What we've learned is that that approach simply doesn't work, um, that in fact there are Lots of firms that are not H-1B dependent, that don't fall in that bad actor or questionable actor. Really, they're not considered bad actors or considered they'll have to jump through some additional hoops. There's lots of, of companies that we know exploit the program. Uh, I think you said consulting companies. These are the same yeah. kinds of companies that are not H-1B dependent. So the right way to approach it is to ensure that every visa is used appropriately um, rather than trying to target particular employers. Because... It becomes too complex to try to identify who's a good actor and bad actor. It's a lot easier to identify a good use of the visa and a bad use of the visa.
3: But when you, when you mention companies exploiting the program, what specifically do you mean when you use the term exploit?
2: Sure. So there's, a, of course, a lot of times the firms are, are following the letter of the law, right? So when I say exploit, I'm saying abuse of the program. It's outside the intended, the spirit of the law. Oftentimes it's perfectly legal uh, what they do. Uh, in fact, they're very careful because there's companies that literally the majority of their workforce and they have tens of thousands of workers in the US aren't H-1Bs. If they were uh, breaking the law, uh, they may they threaten their own business model that way. So uh, when I say exploit, I'm saying they're using it in a way that wasn't intended. That if you ask any politician or policymaker or any sort of average person, How's the program supposed to be used, including the folks who advocate in favor of it? It's being used way outside the the intended purpose, and it's certainly not being used for the best and brightest.
3: So the program was intended to fill a shortage in the market, right? Um, And anything or any use of the program outside of that original intent would possibly be considered exploitation of the program. So how do you respond to the statistics that explain how far behind the United States workforce is with respect to certain STEM skills and certain engineering and computer-related educations. Mm -hmm. And And
1: or I also say doctors in rural areas. I think there's been tons of, you know, I mean, just not even talking about STEM, but you also talk about the shortage of doctors in rural areas and not being able to get H-1Bs for those folks because U.S. doctors don't want to move to Alabama. mm -hmm. What's so, what's your yeah uh,
3: the concern that we have? And, you know, in the interest of full disclosure, we are employer sponsored immigration attorneys. Right. So we're mm-hmm. going to have a, v- a fairly opposite view on this program. But, you know, the concern that I have is when you when you or anyone, you know, expresses criticism of the H-1B program, then folks that are a little less familiar with the nuances automatically assume that companies are taking jobs for which qualified U.S. workers exist mm-hmm. and are offering them instead to foreign workers at a way lower salary Mm -hmm. when there's a bunch of unemployed us workers sitting around perfectly skilled and ready to take these jobs but then if you look at the department of labor's own statistics you can see that the number one occupation that the you know h1b gets used for is software engineering related occupations which also happens to be a category in which the u.s workforce is still playing you know catch up in terms of its own internal skills so how Mm -hmm. do you I guess combat that particular viewpoint.
2: Well, I think the premise of your uh, question is actually wrong in the sense that uh, there anybody who's actually looked at the labor market and uh, you know these are labor economists who look at these at the labor markets um, would say that there is no systemic shortage of STEM workers in the U.S. In fact, we're graduating record numbers of engineers. There's over hundred thousand engineers uh, at the bachelor's level, and they're almost all U.S. or permanent residents. Um, if we would, if there were really a shortage, as you're claiming, we would see wages going through the roof. We would see companies investing in professional development. We would see companies dipping into broader, uh, talent pools. We know that the tech industry is horrible, uh, when it comes to women in tech, uh, drawing from that talent pool, uh, underrepresented minorities. So there's really no evidence that there's a shortage. Having said that, when there are shortages, and there are always spot shortages, either for particular geographies or particular uh, positions, it makes sense to use the H-1B program. The problem, though, is that there's no nobody's requiring that they actually demonstrate a shortage. If there really were these deep shortages, then companies should be e- it should be fairly easy for them to demonstrate. Hey, we look for American workers. We couldn't find them here. We need to tap into this outside labor pool, increase the labor supply through this guest worker program. So that's the question. How do you set up a labor market test where it's not just the employer saying, hey, we want to use this H-1B. And by the way, they don't have to demonstrate that there's any shortage. They don't even have to demonstrate that they recruited uh, Americans. A lot of these jobs are wired. And we know this, that the largest occupation in H-1Bs is computer systems analyst that's not a software engineering job that's a back office i.t job in a insurance company in a, a utility and we know that those jobs are actually yeah. being used and to replace americans so it's kind of almost the opposite at least in some of those cases now in a lot of cases there are really high wage h1b workers who have really special talents so how do we devise a system that's fair that really does meet the needs, the real needs that are verified from outside um, of filling those shortages. And I think you have to be careful and practical about devising those, you know, do you you force them to do recruitment? How do they show that? I think there's a lot of details to work out so that you have a system that is effective, ensuring that these visas are going to real shortages, but also efficient, you don't wanna drown the companies in paperwork that make it so difficult to use the program.
1: Yeah. Nobody would want to use it. And I think it's really good to like have conversations like this because I read stuff and then I realize that there's a gap in terms of information. A, I think that a lot of our clients in Silicon Valley are doing a lot of investing. They're going out and they're exploring what they're considering. They're going into trying to recruit more minorities who, who don't have... Uh, engineering backgrounds, they're they are going after more women in tech. Um, a lot of our clients are approaching the apprentice background. So there's a lot of stuff, whether it's LinkedIn, whether it's Google, there's been a lot in the press about these companies expanding their, their pool of what they're going after. The second thing I would say is I'd be interested for you to come out and talk to some of, so I've, I've been doing this for over 10 years. I've worked with t- uh, recruiters, talent acquisition, um, have you ever spoken with any of those folks? Headhunters? No, no. Out? I'm talking about in-house talent acquisition at like uh, within a, Go- the at a Google or an Amazon or a Salesforce. No, they haven't approached me. I'd be welcome. So essentially what you have in the Silicon Valley is it is such a competition for talent beyond belief. You wouldn't even imagine. In addition to one person receiving like three or four different offers from multiple companies in Silicon mm-hmm. Valley. at at you know rates of 150 to 200 thousand dollars a year, not only do they pay them above market to what they pay a U.S. citizen because they have to compete against you know offers from the Googles, the Apples, the Salesforces, they have to pay their immigration fees. Which by the time that they start with the company to the time you know they sponsor their green card, they do their spouses, they're paying 20 to 25 thousand dollars in legal fees. So I think there is a strong reality that actually getting a foreign worker in the door is more expensive by far than hiring a U.S. worker. And we've invited folks from CIS or folks who are writing research papers, come talk to the recruiters out mm-hmm. in Silicon Valley and understand the talent pool because it is crazy. And what, you know, one of the things that you talked about in the paper is somebody starts a job and then they can't move because they're, they're employer sponsored. But we actually find the exact opposite. We find that a lot of these folks on H one B's have so many different options. They're being being pinged constantly. Whether you know, I've been through all types of markets. I practiced in two thousand eight, um, but then again, nobody could transfer jobs because the market there was <laughs> there weren't any jobs. But right now, you know, like I said, people are being are being poached, pinged constantly. This is our experience with uh, you know non consulting companies. You know, I, I don't want to mislead folks. We I don't I don't know the world of consulting companies. I have clients who use consultants, but... So, can I respond to that Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: So, again, if there's this desperate shortage, then it would be pretty easy for them to meet the labor market test. So, the question becomes, why won't they cut a deal and say, we'll do a labor market test. We'll have one that's reasonable. Instead, they fought that all the way through. Um, And, I mean, that's the reality of the politics of those companies. Secondly, most of these visas are not going... There, they're going. If you look at the wages, if you look at locations and employers, they're not going to those firms. If we instead had a priority system where it was based on wages, either level four, level three, or based on wage ranking, then those firms would presumably get more visas. I mean, one way to measure skills is based on wages. So I don't think we're talking about different things here. Yeah, but why not? Setting up the rules so that those firms actually get the sort of talent they need now in terms of the mobility there's definitely some mobility of course once you're sponsored for a green card if you're from India which a lot of H1B workers are um, it's a little bit scarier for them to switch Um, they can keep their place as I understand it you're the immigration attorney but it's a little bit scary you're taking a leap of faith that the new employer is actually gonna sponsor you for the green card do you really want to lose your uh, place in line and by the way look these are still guest workers um and that gives a lot of power to the employer and you can ask anybody from immigration voice how they feel whether they'd rather be a permanent resident or a guest worker 100 they're, they're going to tell you they would like to be a permanent resident so why don't we figure out a way if these are people that we really want and need to keep figure out how to get them green cards yeah. so that they're that we don't have to create this sort of uh separate labor market around guest workers that they can operate within the, the normal labor market of the
1: u.s yeah one, just real quick, one of the other things you brought up was 41% of the mm-hmm. workers approved by the government were at wage level one, additional 37% were level two. Mm-hmm. How, how do you make the jump that the folks who are actually working in these levels aren't level one, level two? Like, how do you, how do you make that? Oh, uh, we don't know. How I do mean, you make so that it, nexus? As I
2: understand it, it's up to the, and you're the immigration attorneys. So I understand it. It's as the employer. Yeah. Defines the position, and then they can fill the position with anybody they want, but the, it's based on the way the position is defined, and, and it's
1: the background of the individual. Yeah.
2: So, so regardless, the level one wage is about, and this is it differs because of the way it, the way the, the wage schemes work, right? It's it's roughly about a forty percent discount. Uh, level two is about a twenty percent discount over the average wage. So the argument here is that if these folks were really super skilled you would expect them to be at higher wage levels and and by the way if these are level one positions they're really entry level and then that raises the larger question of why can't we train people to fill these positions or aren't there people who are trained either through apprenticeships and by the way I have looked at those kinds of things and you know Microsoft which is one of the largest companies in the world. Has about forty apprentices in the U.S., right? I mean, so it's, we're not talking about a large-scale investment.
1: Well, I, I mean, the way that the H one B is is defined, it, it doesn't. I mean, it's you know, it's it has to be a specialty occupation with a person with a bachelor's degree. Yeah, that's that's wide berth though. I mean, but that's the that's what the regulation says. Though, right, so that's why I'm saying the yeah. regulation's
2: not very good and the level one wage doesn't have to be set at the 17th percentile right it could be set at the average
1: wage but assuming that, that they they
2: be. set the wages at market right no they don't they set the wage level three by definition is the median wage
1: but level one is market for entry level percent no, it
2: isn't. it's it's a wage distribution so the way it works is departmental labor um unless you use a private wage survey yeah. which a lot of firms do use um the way it works is, if you imagine a, a wage distribution like a bell curve, level three is the average wage, yep. which arguably is way too low. Um, level two is about the thirty-third percentile. Level one is the seventeenth percentile in that sort of bell curve. They're they're not doing a special wage survey to find out what entry-level workers are being paid. We know from cases like Southern California Edison that you know they're replacing people who are getting about one hundred and ten thousand a year with people who are getting about 70,000 to 75,000. And those US workers train their replacements.
3: I think that the reference to the fact that US workers train their replacements oftentimes invokes a very kind of strong emotional response. But I don't know if that necessarily has anything to do with the actual foreign worker or the program in and of itself. I think that that could arguably be classified as just kind of like a bad practice or an insensitive policy that the company had. I mean, what does that have to do with the H-1B worker?
2: Well, it goes to the premise of the program. You're trying to import guest workers to fill shortages. If you're asking an American worker to train their replacement, there's no shortage there, right? It's just a question of someone's w- willing to work cheaper. Now, you could argue, and a lot of people do argue, including some academics and think tank types, that that's perfectly fine, that employers should be able to do whatever they want w- with the program. But I think that goes to the heart of the whole point of the program, which was to fill shortages. It, it, the appearance of it, it, it basically makes that argument sort of absurd, right, on its face, that that there's obviously no shortage if someone is actually training, and by the way, it's not like the H-1B worker has some special skills, they're being trained, right, to take over these jobs, and this isn't a one-off kind of thing, this is a very common practice, where you're talking about hundreds of workers, sometimes a thousand workers at at some of these companies, New York Life. I mean, I could give you a litany of, of examples of, of how and where this worked. So that's the kind of the canary in the coal mine to say, hey, there's something wrong here. This is not going to the best and brightest. This is not going to fill shortages. It's being exploited. There are many companies that have built their business model around exploiting the program to essentially undercut American workers.
3: So it's you- not an anecdote. So going back, when we were talking about whether or not there was indeed a shortage, uh, you had mentioned that the United States was graduating a record number of engineers. Mm -hmm. Is it important to make the distinction between a higher number of graduates in STEM fields relative to the U.S. workforce in the past versus the actual demand in terms of, you know, open positions within the company? Because, you know, based on the research that we do, It appears that there is indeed a shortage, even though the US is graduating a record number Mm -hmm. of engineers as compared to its own history.
2: So look, so there's lots of ways to try to measure shortages, right? One can use labor market indicators like unemployment, um, uh, jobs that are uh, remaining open and whatnot. Um, The companies themselves actually do their own benchmarks, right? So they do things like offer acceptance rates, uh, days that jobs go unfilled whether they have to do signing bonuses and whatnot. And I've been, I've told the, the trade associations that represent the companies that they should start to come up with you know, and publish some of that data so that it gives a better labor market signal to US workers that these are the hot areas. Um, if they publish that, that would be very useful information. That's something that the Department of Labor doesn't do. But the bottom line is really, um, you've got the labor market works just like other markets, right? there's supply and demand and the equilibrium is where is the price right and if there was really a shortage like if there's a shortage of oil what happens gasoline prices go up if there's a shortage of u.s workers in particular areas wages go up right the prices that companies have to pay go up and then that sends a labor market signal out right that workers want to flock there uh, and students want to go into those fields so that's really what we should be looking at is the wages But we know these positions that are being filled for the H-1B, a lot of them aren't filling shortages. And we know that wages really haven't gone up in IT across the board, right? They're not, there's no systemic indication of any shortage. And this isn't just me talking. You can look at um, uh, Hal Salzman's work from Rutgers University. You could look at Michael Teitelbaum has a great book called Falling Behind that examines this science and engineering workforce shortage. He's... At Harvard now he was at the Sloan Foundation uh, before that so um, if there's really a shortage then we should be targeting the H-1B program towards those shortages but
1: we have to have some way of verifying that there's a shortage you can't just take the employer's word for it so we do a lot of perm applications Mm -hmm. where we actually test the U.S. labor market Mm -hmm. and we do it both for our clients through the the normal perm process and then occasionally you'll get selected for what's called supervised recruitment where the Dol dictates the advertisements that you put up, you essentially put up twice twice the amount of, of normal advertisements. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's what's your take on the fact that, like, you know, despite all these testing the U.S. labor market, they're just aren't they're not U.S. workers who are applying. Mm-hmm. Well, I've heard
2: both sides of that, and I don't know. I have no way of of validating uh, the claims. You know, there's ways to gain uh, different systems. Yeah. And, and again, this is why, uh, one has to go through this in a way that it's both effective and efficient. And that's hard, right. To meet both of those things because they're in tension with one another. But if we wanted to have a good faith effort, you know, then there, there are ways to, to devise it. I mean, look, you know, we, we can do all kinds of things. I, I think we can figure this part of it out. Um, and one other way to do it is to raise the wages significantly. If you're, if you're paying somebody way above market wage uh, rate, then it's less likely you're bringing them in because they're cheaper. It's more likely that you're bringing them in uh, because they're bringing some specialized skills, whether there's a shortage or not. They're really a special worker because they're being paid way above the market. And that would be a good way to identify. And if you have really high wages, there's less need for this sort of labor market test because in a sense, you've got a labor market test based on the wages.
1: Have you done research on the the perm program?
2: Uh, I, I know a little bit about the data, but
1: I don't know the process. From what I understand, a lot of the consulting companies do not go through that perm program for folks. so it's more of you know it's more of the direct employer, so you get kind of a let's say, a better pulse on like the the wages that are being offered
2: yeah yes and no i think um uh, some of the consulting companies do uh, so cognizant's been actually the biggest perm applier uh, at least until last year um by far almost i think twice or three times the number um that microsoft uh, had either in 16 or 17. so i've looked at at some of that data um but again you know the 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 question is are h1b's really being paid and and shouldn't you have kind of a better front-end screening process of the H-1B so that they're being allocated, right? I mean, if they allocated them to higher wages, it would be good for those foreign workers. It would be good for US workers, but it would also be better for the US economy because you're targeting real genuine shortages.
3: I actually had two questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are your, I suppose, suggestions or recommendations for how an H-1B petitioning employer demonstrate that there, there is indeed a shortage for purposes of that initial H-1B filing
2: well I think there's a, a couple of ways one if we raise the wages significantly other than the wages yeah well that's, uh, it really does come down to wages in a lot of ways the other way um, which was in the original version of the 2013 uh, uh, bill that passed the Senate well before it got amended and, yeah. and watered down firms would have had to actively recruit U.S. workers, and if there were qualified applicants, they'd have to hire them. Microsoft and others objected to that. So the question is, how do you come up with a reasonable method? Again, I don't have a, I don't have the perfect solution, but this is what we should be discussing um, with your expertise, having gone through the the perm process with the employers' expertise, but one that's fair, both not just for the employers. Of course, you guys represent the employers. But also for the U.S. workforce and for the U.S. economy, so that these jobs are really being filled. These are real shortage jobs. And by the way, um, you know, we've been talking about the consulting companies, and you know, I use the the outsourcers, and I call them the yeah. outsourcers. Um, but that just indicates how broken the system is. Right? There was a case of the Department of Labor, the OFCCP, which enforces affirmative action uh, uh, rules for. Uh, any federal contractor. There's a case with Oracle, which is an iconic Silicon Valley company, um, relational database technology. They, they popularized it. Um, one of the largest enterprise software companies uh, in the world based in Silicon Valley. And the this is Department of Labor's words. they they brought, a, a alleged that Oracle has an extreme preference. That's quote, an extreme preference for visa workers. And that As a result they're discriminating against women and minorities and have brought a 400 million dollar lawsuit so you know whether oracle's actively trying to do this or not they get into habits in the way that they do their recruitment and everything else and it's having adverse impacts
3: as justin was mentioning you know if you talk to recruiters and talent acquisition in uh silicon valley or in the bay area They will most likely tell you that there is a huge shortage, which obviously even in Indianapolis, which we we know that you disagree with to um, make a company demonstrate other than increasing the wage, demonstrate Mm. that there is indeed a shortage is going to unduly burden the hiring company because. You know this is an industry that moves very very quickly they need to be able to fill these positions there's a very high level of competition and you do make a reference to the fact that you you, you don't necessarily recommend a process that unnecessarily bogs down mm-hmm. you know these companies but with any additional step that you add to the process mm-hmm. it's going to burden the petitioning company mm-hmm. and result in some form of a loss right Well, there's
2: losses right now, I mean, but the losses are going to the American workers and to those foreign workers who are being underpaid. So you've got to balance this out, right? Maybe there's going to be a little bit more of a burden, but do it in a way that still ensures that the program has some integrity.
1: And then what's your thought on if you put huge hurdles not bureaucratic hurdles, but, but major hurdles for these companies. They're going to, they're going to go develop Mm -hmm. the next level IT somewhere else. And and the U S falls behind, which is kind of what we're seeing happening. Anecdotally speaking, I had a person at a major, one of the largest companies in the U S apply for an H1B. She was developing artificial intelligence and her H1B was denied because CIS said it's not a specialty occupation. It's the person with the PhD. We eventually got it approved, but what you're going to see is, if you put such a huge hurdle, you know, for these companies to sponsor the best and the brightest, they're going to go to Canada and then there goes the US in terms of being the the leader in terms yeah. of technology. Not
3: to mention the the individual foreign national employees perception of this quote unquote hurdle, right? The reluctance to actually exe- accept a position that perhaps in the future the company would otherwise be able to successfully support.
2: Yeah, so of course I you know, I wrote a whole book called Outsourcing America, which is about the whole outsourcing, and concern about uh, high-skilled jobs and innovation moving overseas. So I know a little bit about um, these things. The, the problem um, with the discussion there is manyfold, but I'll, I'll address a couple things. One, if companies wanted to offshore the work, they would already do that. It's cheaper for them to offshore the work. There's something about um, the geographic proximity of those positions that make it valuable to, to hire somebody there these are geographically sticky jobs usually um and so uh most of the claims that you know if we can't get the h1b worker we're going to offshore the work are exaggerated um the case of, of vancouver with microsoft it was really kind of a way station for them to bring in l1 workers so they worked there for a year and then brought them into redmond so i'm um, you know the question is what do you do for jobs that are geographically sticky and the the question is do they have should they have to look for us workers first or and to what extent what should that burden be um and i think it's reasonable to have some level of third party independent review of hey there there really is a need here and if you did that you'd actually be filling those jobs with really the most skilled folks right i mean um, right now, if I'm a a an outsourcing company and I want a thousand visas next year, I've got two hundred thousand people in India. I can apply for three thousand visas. I got one in three odds. Your case, your anecdote of the PhD in that that case, it was the the occupation and everything else. But they have a one in three chance of getting that particular worker, the way the lottery operates right now. If instead we targeted it was a two transfer, goes, was it a it was a H one B transfer? Tra- okay. So, so they wouldn't have been in a the lottery then. Yeah, but in the cases of startups, or if you're trying to hire somebody from OBT, right? They got a one in three chance, roughly over the last few years. Yeah. Instead, you got it, You got these firms that are, you know, that have large pools of people overseas. And by the way, this has fueled the outsourcing and offshoring of of the work. Yeah. These flaws, right? So, if you're concerned about outsourcing, you would want to close. Yeah. Tighten up the H-1B rules. I mean, IBM now has more workers in India than the U.S. That's not by accident, right? The H-1B program has really fueled that offshoring yeah. um, of these these positions. I'm really happy for my cousins in India who have a lot more opportunity than they did 15 years ago.
1: But it concerns me how this is uh, affecting uh, the
2: U.S. economy.
1: Yeah. So I would argue against the stickiness. I think that companies are more nimble and willing to go elsewhere at this point and it's not going to India it's going to Canada it's going to Ireland It's going to places in Europe Mm -hmm. that is a real thing that's happening the other thing that I have I guess my last question is what if we do all this you know for folks who are saying that there is no shortage um, and it stunts tech growth in the US and all of a sudden we fall behind China what if we fall behind Canada what if you're wrong like, what's the end game here? What if you're wrong? And 15 years down the road, you realize, you, you know what? There was a tech shortage. There was a manpower shortage. Because there are people who are graduating in the, in the STEM field now, but, um, I mean, it takes years to kind of catch up. What if you're wrong? And that results in businesses leaving somewhere else. And a company is not going to stay in San Francisco just because they, they want to stay there. They're going to go elsewhere uh, where they can get resources, um we have to stop thinking of ourselves as kind of the one place that all this technology and business can be because it's not
2: well i i think this is that's kind of speculative right i mean there, there's a reason well, it's, they, it's they're the in,
1: same as saying that there's it's, no that's not
2: speculative when we look at actual wages i think you got to find the right balance you obviously want to keep folks who are really the best and brightest and if you raise the wage levels that's the best indicator There's really two ways that we measure skills, right? One is education level, and the other is wages. If you want to really have the highest skilled people, you want to have the highest wage people. It's really as simple as that. And they're going to fuel, then, the next tech revolution. I mean, there's a reason why Silicon Valley is Silicon Valley. Boston used to be a leader. One of the reasons that Silicon Valley took over, right? I mean, there were a lot of computer companies in Boston, in the Boston area, there's really interesting research that shows that actually labor mobility is a big reason why California took over a lot of the tech, and the 128 route 128 did not and lost a lot of the tech, was because California um, doesn't is is pretty strict about allowing non compete clauses. They don't allow. They basically disallow non compete clauses. So workers could switch jobs fairly easily in California. They couldn't do that in Massachusetts. They couldn't go from company to company. So there's a lot of things that go into the sort of secret sauce of Silicon Valley. Immigration is one of them. We don't disagree. We, I agree yeah. with you wholeheartedly. I'm all for immigration. These are guest worker programs. The question is how do you select the best and bright, brightest guest workers and get them to be permanent residents as quickly as possible? Yeah. You know, 1990... Employment norms were very different, right back then if you laid someone off that was Like a last resort if you were an employer, right? You you and there was sort of public shaming around it And we had much more of a stakeholder model of businesses and employment Employment norms have changed quite radically. So you've got companies like Microsoft that'll complain about shortages at the same time that are laying off 18,000 workers So what gives there? And you've got companies that will lay off just because they can hire someone cheaper the rules haven't changed since 1990 right so you've got to update the rules to meet the current employment norms so that you balance the different stakeholders.
1: well we so we as a background to that we've been one of kind of the biggest um, advocates for HR 392 which mm-hmm. is the elimination okay. I mean we've we've worked with our the companies we represent we've gone you know to advocacy days and we've like talked to you know members of congress about it 100 percent. i mean it's a no-brainer for me
3: but i want i want to ask you um on the record about mm-hmm. a situation that i think doesn't get enough attention um in this particular debate and that is the us's dependence on immigrant teachers and public schools i'm not sure if you're aware of the specific shortages but most large states and school districts are reporting huge shortages in terms of uh, qualified teachers. So some of the larger school districts in the U.S. have actually turned to foreign-born teachers to help fill these open positions. A lot of the open positions and shortages are actually specifically in STEM-related subjects, right? Mm -hmm. So they're Mm -hmm. not just short on teachers, but like math teachers and chemistry teachers and whatnot. But if we proceed with reforming the H-1B program Mm -hmm. to include, you know, demanding higher wages or insisting that the um, beneficiary get paid a higher wage, then there are entire industries that it's going to adversely Mm -hmm. affect. The irony here is that it would affect the actual teachers that we need to teach our kids, U.S. kids, subjects like science, math, computer sciences, and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So um, I was wondering if you could give your thoughts on that.
1: Uh, well,
2: again, you sort of set it up as kind of a one size.
3: You don't ad, like ad, my ad, questions uh, very much, Professor. Not,
2: well, <laughs> not, I don't think you're giving me the full landscape, right? I mean, there's a number of cases of, uh, like in Louisiana, right, where uh, teachers were recruited from the Philippines. Uh, so there's a lot of labor brokers that get involved in this kind of uh, uh, recruitment of, of H-1B workers uh, as teachers, and, and they get exploited also, Right. Um, and, you know, what was it, uh, PG County had a $4 million fine. They were barred yeah. they barred from using the program because of the way they were using it. Dallas, there was a scandal uh, where there were kickbacks and corruption between the CFO, if I remember correctly, um, on, again, labor broker and recruitment of, of these teachers. So the question becomes need. How do you demonstrate yeah. the need? But I think what your question really raises is the larger issue of, should H-1Bs be allocated based on wages? And if they are based on highest wages, what you'd end up with is um, a skewing or a biasing towards the coast, the more expensive areas, and towards the more higher paid, on average, wage uh, occupations. And so teachers probably would not rank very high there. So do you come up with some other way of demonstrating need and allocating your H-1Bs based on that? real need as opposed to claims of a need, right? So I don't know how you do that. One way to do that is to set up, right now you've got four wage levels, right? So instead of of allocating the visas based on wage rank, which by the way, a lot of people agree with, including the Libertarian Cato Institute, right? He advocates for wage ranking. The other way to do it is to allocate level four wages, and then level three, level two, so that you're taking away The geographic and occupational biases; that instead you're basing it on the the higher wages. Now, does that solve the issue you're getting at, where you know where the (coughs) rural areas and doctors, you know, where it's hard to recruit teachers? I don't know. So you have to come up with some other scheme. Right now, K-12 educators are uh, part of the same cap, right, and so they have to go into the lottery too. They're not exempt from the cap.
0: For more immigration updates, make sure to follow us on Twitter at EIGNerdsPodcast and join in the conversation. I'm Ian Gaines. See you next time.